Good afternoon, everyone. My name is, good afternoon. My name is Judy Beltres, and I am a joyful covenant member here at the well, and I'm also the wife of that haughty pastor over there. <laughs> and uh, we gladly serve as leaders of um, the Northeast Community Group. There you are. <laughs> and today I'll be reading from the book of John, chapter 15, verses 12 through 17 in Spanish. Y este es mi mandamiento, que se amen los unos a los otros como yo los he amado. Nadie tiene amor más grande que el dar la vida por sus amigos. Ustedes son mis amigos si hacen lo que yo les mando. Ya no los llamo siervos, porque el siervo no está al tanto de lo que hace su amo. Los he llamado amigos, porque todo lo que a mi padre le oí decir, se lo he dado a conocer a ustedes. No me escogieron ustedes a mí, sino que yo los escogí a ustedes y los comisioné para que vayan y den fruto, un fruto que perdure. Así el Padre les dará todo lo que le piden en mi nombre. Este es el mandamiento, que se amen los unos a los otros. This is the word of the Lord. What's up, beautiful family? Good. Hey, I love y'all. I love being here. Uh, I was uh, actually preaching last week, but I was out of town the whole week, so I felt like I wasn't here, and I was like, I miss my family. Um, and so it is so good to be here. Uh, I am not preaching today, but I know that sometimes when uh, somebody gets up that we don't know, we're like, who is this guy? All right. And so I wanted to introduce our friend to us. Um, hey, we have been deeply, deeply blessed, as many of y'all know, to be able to be here at Westover. They've been such a blessing uh, just to give us their space and to allow us to come in to worship um, every single week and to be generous with allowing us to use their stuff and accidentally break one of their microphones and they didn't even know that, right? But we replaced it without them even knowing because we're good stewards in this mug, all right? Uh, but man, they have just been so, so kind to us. And so um, last week I got the privilege of preaching at Westover in the morning and this week we get the privilege of hearing Westover's lead pastor, Luke, uh, to lead us in the word today. And so um, as he comes up, y'all, I want us to like, man, I know that this is not about a person, but their generosity has been awesome. I want us to like thank him and to give him a warm, well, welcome, and also show this brother some love, all right? So Luke, come up, give us a word for us today, man. Thank y'all. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thank you all. Uh, it is an honor to, to be here with, with you all. Uh, like Tori said, he did a great job preaching last week. Our people really loved getting to know him. And I just want to say, it, it is an honor for us to get to serve y'all. My, my grandmother passed away about three years ago. And uh, at her funeral... She wanted us to talk about something she did 60 years before that in Richardson, Texas. Now, 60 years before that, she was part of a group that started a church in Richardson. They called her a, a charter member. And at the end of her life, one of the things that she wanted everyone to know, that she was grateful she was a part of, was starting a church. And you all are part of something right now that I bet some of you are going to be thinking the same thing my grandmother thought at the end of her life. That starting a church is one of the best things she ever got to do. And so I want you guys to be aware, you guys have a unique gift that has been given to you to be a part of the, the beginning of this beautiful church. 
And so it, it is a huge honor for me to play a small part in helping this phase of y'all's life. And we are so glad you're here and we love what you all are doing. And we love that our facility is being used so well in the afternoon by y'all. And so it is truly a blessing to us. So thank you for being with us. And it is just great to, to see you face to face this morning. Now, last week, Tori did say he, he preached for us, and he did a wonderful job. He had this great, great word about peace. And I don't know if you heard it, but I heard it. I wrote it down. I've been thinking about it every, every day since then. Where he said, what are you reading right now that is going to give you peace in the future? That's brilliant. That's a great word. Another word he said last week that our church had never heard before in a sermon was the word ratchet. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that was something. Uh, Appreciate all the emails that I responded to because of Tori. So, uh, yeah, big shout out to Tori on that one. Thank you. I believe that was ratchet. Um, yeah, it doesn't feel right, me saying that. <laughs> all right, let's get started. Uh, so we're in that season leading up until Christmas morning. But don't be confused. The season isn't about just remembering what happened 2,000 years ago. It's about anticipating what will happen again one day. Because if God came to flesh in the person of Jesus 2,000 years ago, God will do it again. Amen? Amen. But 2,000 years ago, the story goes, there's a group of shepherds. And they felt called and they were told to go find this baby that had been born. And in Luke's gospel, the way that Luke tells it, An angel has a specific word to these men to tell them how to know that they are getting the right baby. There's a lot of babies there, but there's one way for y'all to know that this is the right baby. So let me read this text. This is Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Do we have that up there? If not, this is going to be a long sermon. All right, it's up there. Maybe. Okay, so let's just imagine that I have it memorized and I can just quote it off the top of my head. There he goes. Yes, thanks be to God. (laughs) Luke 2 says, To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. So in, in Christian history, the way Jesus is described is often Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And all three of those terms are used right there to describe what this baby is going to be. Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Now that word Lord is a real special one. In what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, when they translated those into Greek, the personal intimate name of God was translated Lord. And so they say this baby is Savior, Messiah, and Lord. And the way that you're going to find the Savior the Messiah, the Lord, is a sign for you. It's, it's in a manger. Now, part of that text is literally just describing which baby it is. Like, he, he's the one in the manger. There's not a lot of them in the mangers. This one is in a manger. But I think when the angel said those words, it wasn't just a sign about where to find him in that moment, but it was a sign of what kind of Savior, Messiah, and Lord he would be. If you want to know what kind of Savior, Messiah, and Lord Jesus is going to be, it starts by looking in a manger. It wasn't much. It wasn't a fancy building. We've all seen the Hallmark version of this, and it looks fancy and and pretty and beautiful, but it's not much. It was tiny, Palestinian, peasant's place. It, It was so cramped that you have the people and the animals in the same facility. 
And probably off to the side, there was this food trough, a manger, where they would put the baby in. I assume most of us have never been to a Palestinian peasant's home, but we've seen places like it. I've seen places like it. It's the same feel, the same vibes, the same energy. So my wife is actually from Austin, like one of the few, like one of the six people who's actually from Austin. And uh, so I married an Austin girl, so like I ended up having to be here, like it was going to happen. Like if you guys are not sure how life works, you just move where your wife is from. That's how it goes. You can write that down, that's free. So I'm not originally from Texas. Actually, West Philadelphia is where I was born and raised. And on the playground is where I spent most of my days. Now, I got in one little fight, and so my family moved to rural southeast Ohio. And when I say rural, like, I literally mean rural. Like, there was no name for the street that I lived on. If you wanted directions, it was just you turn past the red barn. Like, that's how they described the road I grew up on. And so it's, like, it was beautiful. It's picturesque. Um, but there was, like, no zoning. And so, like, my neighbors had cows. They had acres and all that stuff. And we didn't because, again, I'm from Philly. I don't know what to do with the cow. And... Everyone kind of did their own thing. And so a couple miles down the rural road that I lived on, our school bus would take us by this one area. And there's a couple kids who would get on from this area. And I'm really embarrassed that I didn't say anything. And I sure hope I didn't actually say it myself. But everyone would call that area Goonville. These people had little to no resources. It was a cluster of mobile homes. There was a bunch of cars that didn't work that were just kind of parked in the yard. It was kind of common to see a kid walking around in diapers with no shoes and that hadn't taken a bath any time recently. It was Goonville. And for as picturesque as we make the nativity scene out to be, where Jesus was born looked more, more like that. This is a sign of this is who he is. If Jesus would have been born in Philly, it would have been in the projects. That's where he would have been born. If Jesus would have been born in Brazil, it would have been the, the slums down there. Favela. And when the angel says, this is a sign to you, it's not just like describing where the actual baby was to be born, but it's a sign of this is how Jesus is as a Savior and a Messiah and a Lord. And so when you think of who God is, God is the one who stoops down so low that he's born as a baby to peasants in a tiny Palestinian home. And when we think throughout the fabric of human history, how people, how royalty act, it's, it's not like that. It doesn't look like that at all. And whenever a royalty acts like that, we, we kind of step back. It doesn't, like, it doesn't make sense to us. And we see like little moments and pictures where we kind of see something like that, but it's few and far between. Let me tell you about one of those guys. Uh, we've got an image here, and this is King Hussein of Jordan. On August 11th, 1952, King Hussein became the king, and he ruled as the king of Jordan until 1999, when he died at the age of 63 from cancer. Now, if you're doing the math in your head, 52 to 99, he died at the age of 63. Like, he, he was obviously young when he became king. And the reason he was young is because when he was 17, the king of Jordan, his grandfather, was murdered right in front of him. And so King Hussein becomes the king at the age of 17 after seeing his beloved grandfather murdered right in front of him. 
And Jordan is a country, if you don't know, like the Middle East, it, it's neighbors with Israel. And if you don't know much about the geopolitical climate in the Middle East, Israel has a tumultuous relationship with basically the entire Arab world, including Jordan. And so King Hussein becomes king, his grandfather is murdered, and in the year 1963, he does something that would be completely unfathomable. In the Arab world, meeting with your enemies, as I understand it, is completely unacceptable. But that's what he starts doing in secret. In 1963, all the way into the year 1994, when the peace treaty with Israel and Jordan is signed. And there was one moment that in a lot of ways captured the essence of who King Hussein was. A few years before his death, there was an Israeli family that experienced the loss of their beloved family member by murder. It was a terrorist attack. There was a bomb. But King Hussein traveled from Jordan to Israel, and he went to the home of those who had experienced the loss. And he didn't explain it, and he didn't say, well, you, your people did this to my people. He, he didn't say, hey, here's how I'm going to fix it. He just sat and gave them his undivided attention and was present. And they were surprised because this isn't what kings do. Kings don't usually stoop this low. It was a shock, but that's, that's what royalty does in the story of Jesus. The king stoops real low. And it doesn't make, make sense because the God in the Jewish scriptures is the God who is so full of glory that the Lord causes people to turn their head and not look. That Jesus is the one who in Matthew, we're told, will sit upon his glorious throne while the nations gather before him. Jesus is the one who is the savior of all things, but he is served up in a food trough. Because in the birth of Jesus, there is a sign of what kind of God Jesus is. He is a God who lowers himself to be with us. From the very fabric of human history is that we're always like pulling ourselves up. Like, even if we don't think about it, we're just pulling ourselves up. My first job out of school took my wife and I to Florida's Gulf Coast. So my first job in school was on the Gulf in Florida in a town called Panama City. If you've ever been there, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, okay, so maybe you haven't been there, but you get it if you have. And so I had this job, beautiful beaches of Panama City, and I bring a friend of mine in from Oklahoma who's going to come preach at our church. And so Wade comes in, he's got his two boys and his wife, and so we take him out into uh, the Gulf. Now, a little backstory: Wade is a CrossFitter, right? Uh, you know the number one way to tell if someone's a CrossFitter? Like, they'll tell you, right? Like, the first rule of CrossFit is tell everyone you do CrossFit. And so, so Wade's like this, he's early 30s, he's a CrossFitter, he's out in the ocean, and uh, there's some manta rays, do you know what a manta ray is? We've got a picture of what a manta ray is. And so there's this school of man. All right, they're nice animals. This isn't like a stingray. It's not going to get you, even if you're the crocodile hunter. Like, they're nice. That was a little dark, was it? A little dark? Okay, I'm just saying, like, we'll carry on. All right. Um, you guys broke my microphone, all right? You guys don't get to talk trash to me. <clears throat> okay, so we're on the ocean. Wade the CrossFitters with his boys and his wife, and he sees this school of manta rays come up. And Wade just freaks out. Like, I knew he was a follower of Jesus, I didn't know he also could walk on water because that's what he did. He pushed his kids out of the way and just like jumped into the boat. And a couple months later when his wife started talking to him again, I asked him, 
I was like, what happened, dude? What, what happened? He goes, I don't know. I just had to get out of there. I just had to pull myself up. Like it just, like his brain just turned off. He just had to pull himself up. When Luke begins chapter 2, describing the time in which Jesus is born, Luke tells us that this is the time and the place. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, Emperor Augustus, this is Caesar Augustus. Uh, Troy talked about this a little bit last week. And when Caesar was emperor, you had this Pax Romana, this, this way of getting peace in which everyone bows their knee or will kill you, and that's how we get peace. So he pulled himself up to the top, and it cost a lot of lives. He got there, and he was wanting for sure to let everyone know he was at the top. His dad, his adopted father, was Julius Caesar. In 42 B.C., Caesar Augustus had his adopted father, Julius Caesar, deified. They said, he's not just a person, he is a god, which meant he could call himself Divifilius, which means son of the divine. Like, that's how much he wanted to be powerful. He said my dad wasn't really a person, he was actually a god. Which is, like, I'll be honest, I have three daughters, and I call my daughters princesses, which is a really sweet thing to say to the girls, but, like, that means I'm a king, Right? Like, it's kind of a selfish move. Caesar Augustus says, my dad is divine, which means I'm son of the divine. His name was originally Octavian, but he changed his name to Augustus, which means venerable, exalted. He's pulling himself up. This is the way of human history. This is how we act. Like, you are no different. Like, anytime you have a picture you're going to post on Instagram... What do you look at first? It's not, hey, do my friends look good? Hey, does my, does, my, does my guy look good? No, you're like, do I look good, right? When you think about voting, what is the first thing you think about? How does this impact me? Is this good for me? Is this good for my tax bracket? Is this the best thing for me? When you go to a restaurant, you're not asking, hey, is this good for the server? You ask, is this good, is this good for me? But in the midst of that, you have Jesus shows up and there is a sign that there is a different way. There's an English priest named Edwin Hoskin who said, the incarnation is thrust into the weft of human history. Weft is like uh, the fabric. And he says, the incarnation is like this dagger that's thrust into the fabric of human history. Say, there is a different way. And it's the way that we just heard about from John 15. Where Jesus says, this, this is my command, that you love one another. Let me read those first two verses again. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Of course, Jesus would say that because from the very beginning, there was a sign that Jesus saw love as a self-emptying way of being. Where there's no greater love than to pour yourself out for someone else. And if you want to know what love looks like, there is a sign from the very beginning. So this is it. And then Jesus commands all those who would follow him, would you do the same? Because there's no better love than a love that empties itself for others. And ever since Jesus, those who have followed in the way of Jesus, of emptying themselves, of, of obeying the command have changed human history. So there is a different way of living. Let me tell you a story about one of those people. 
We have his picture. His name is Rick Rascolia. Uh, this is him right here on the left with the, uh, the bullhorn. Uh, Rick was born in Cornwall, England in the year 1939. He served in the British Army, but also in the United States Army, serving in Vietnam. And then the year 1985, he moved to New York City and got a job as the director of security for Morgan Stanley in the World Trade Center's South Tower. Morgan Stanley had 2,700 employees that worked between the 44th and the 74th floor. In 1993, there was a a terrorist attack at the World Trade Center, and that instilled even more concern and obsession to detail for Rick. And so twice a year, they had a a fire drill to get everyone out of the building. Twice a year that happened. Side note, a kid pulled a fire alarm this morning at our church, so we had one of those in our building as well. And uh, so I like, I plan that, of course, to go with my sermon. But unlike our loving people who exited appropriately, you can imagine the guys on Wall Street complained a little bit. But twice a year, every year, he would do this. On September 11th, Rick was working. At 8.48, the first plane hits the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Rick gets on the phone with the New York Port Authority. The Port Authority says, Rick, keep everyone in the South Tower, in your building, because we don't want to create a panic. With the best information they had, the Port Authority believed the best thing to do was not to create panic and said, don't leave. And Rick is on the phone with the Port Authority and says, I'm getting my people (coughs) out of here. And so they start to walk down the stairs, and to lighten the spirits, Rick is singing songs as they're going down. At 9.03, the second plane hits the South Tower, Rick's Tower. And at that part, he had made it almost to the bottom. And reports had him around the 10th floor where everyone else was evacuating, and he turned around and went back up. Some estimate that he got to the 72nd floor. In that time, he called his wife. And she's reported that he said to her, in case something happens... I want you to know that you have been the love of my life. Don't cry. I have to evacuate my people now. He chooses this way of giving himself up. I have to help my people. These are my people. I am going to lay my life down for them. Because of him, of the 2,700 employees in Morgan Stanley, 2,696 of them survived. He was one of just a few who didn't make it. His memorial plaque in Cornwall, England, has his name, and then it has five words. And those five words are, greater love hath no man. A reference to the text from John 15, greater love has no man than this, to lay down his life for those he loves. From the very beginning, Jesus was showing this sign. This is who I am. I am pouring my life out for you. From the very beginning, this is who Jesus is. There's this beautiful piece uh, in New York City at Cloisters. It's called the Moraid Altarpiece. Here's actually a, an image of it. If you see in the very left, there's some people praying 
On the far right, that's Joseph, the carpenter. And in the middle, you have the scene where Mary is receiving the news that she is going to be with child carrying the Messiah. If you zoom in real close, let's go to the next slide. That is embryonic Jesus. I don't know if that's actual. I don't know if they actually got like a picture. And I, don't, I don't know how they figured that out. I don't know. Not sure. But the unnamed artist painted Jesus coming to earth already holding a cross. Because from the very beginning there was a sign that this is what love looks like. Jesus is the one who is going to pour himself out for others because there is no greater love than this. And Jesus commands you and I to do the same thing. Jesus commands you and I to live this same way of living. Don't, don't follow the, the fabric of human history where we pull ourselves up and we think about ourselves, but we give ourselves up for others. And I assume we don't have anyone in here who's going to be the king of some country. I assume, and I hope no one in here is ever in a building that is destroyed by a terrorist attack. But every one of us has small and simple ways that you too can pull yourself out for others. Don't think about yourself, but think about someone else. Monday, I went to my gym, and one of my buddies who is a, a server at Serrano's comes to me and says, Hey, Luke, 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 I almost, I almost texted you on Sunday. Some church people came into my restaurant, and they were actually nice. <laughs> it's like, oh, man. 20 years ago, I was, I was a waiter in Abilene, Texas, where I went to school. And the last shift that anyone wanted to work when I was a waiter was Sunday afternoon. Because you guys are at church. That's other church people I'm talking about. You guys <laughs> know what I'm talking about. Because it's not the best crowd. My buddy from my gym said, yeah, that's kind of the reputation. And so he texted me because people actually came in and said, hey, whenever you're ready, we're ready to order, but we're in no rush. Hey, if you can, we're, we're ready for our ticket, but just on your own time. And so here's the craziest thing that happened this morning. Not just that some kid pulled the fire alarm, but one of my friends from church came up to me afterwards and said, hey, are you talking about Gamboa? And I was like, yeah, that's, that's my buddy's name. I said, uh, he's a Latino guy with a sleeve tattoo. And they go, oh, we love Gamboa. We always see him. And so I said, all right, let's take a selfie. So I take a selfie with my friends from church, and I send it to the waiter, Gamboa. And he texts me back and he goes, oh, you know those people. They are so nice. They're so, and I was like, phew, that'd be really bad if they weren't. <laughs> but, like, they knew the assignment. They knew the assignment. Like, they don't look just for their own self-interest. But when they go to a restaurant, they're not there just to be served, but to serve someone else. That's the sign from Christmas about what life is. The way of Jesus says, don't just be kind to people who are kind to you, but learn to be kind to those who are unkind to you. She said, this is your command. This is who you're to be. And in doing so, you, you follow the spirit of Christmas. But, but to share this love, you got to first, like, receive this love, right? Like, to give this love out to someone else, like, you first have to possess it yourself, right? It's like a Christmas present, like, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, my, my parents would have the tree, and, like, the weeks before Christmas, they would start to put presents out. They'd wrap them up, leave them right around the tree. As I got older, they stopped doing that because we would open them and start to look, and they didn't trust us anymore. 
But can you imagine like having a present that's right in front of you, but you never open it. And it just stays wrapped up. If you don't ever receive the love of Christ, if you don't ever receive the love that God gave for you in the person of Jesus, you can't give it to someone else. Just, just remember, like, wherever you are, if your life is in your own mess, in your own ghetto, in your own slums, in your own poverty, in your addiction, in your regret, in your shame, remember, love comes right there to you. Because we've had a sign of who God is. God is the one who gets down all the way to our level. Because God is love. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you that in Jesus you have shown us your love. And I pray for each and every person here that they may receive this amazing love that you have for us. And God, may this love fill us with confidence. Because the story of Jesus' birth isn't just a nice history lesson about what happened 2,000 years ago. It's a foretelling of what one day will happen again. That if you were able to come to earth 2,000 years ago because of your love, we know your love will bring us back. And we know your love will bring you back to redeem all things. And so may we receive this love. And may we be full of this love so that we can obey the command you have given us to love one another and to lay our life down for others. And we pray this in the name of the resurrected Christ. Amen.